so uh, well and formally introduced. So thank you both very much. And um, and uh, although this is this is my first presentation of a rather formal lecture, the whole thing about Archimedes uh, is that it's necessarily a rather personal tale. And um, and and it's that because of all the people that work on Archimedes, I'm I'm, I'm the only one who's really uh, not qualified to. Uh, to actually do the work. We have here tonight one person who is, and that's Bill Christens Barry. Bill, please stand up. I'm not going to introduce people for me and make them clap again, but Bill is one of the imagers who works on, on the project, and as you'll see over the next, course of the next hour, that's important. I'm now going to hand around um, uh, 3D sort of specs. in Sicily. Uh, this is the theatre in Syracuse, by the way, and uh, if those of you haven't been, it's very cool, and you really can imagine Archimedes actually seating on these seats. And, uh, although no manuscripts survive from the time of Archimedes, there are, there are inscriptions on the, on the seat um, saying where people can sit from exactly this time. Um, there's a lot of legend, most of it really is legend, uh, and there are about 11 surviving treaties of astonishing brilliance uh, by by really one of the really great minds of antiquity. Um, and the transmission of Archimedes treaties, as in so much of ancient literature, is actually uh, through Constantinople, the one place in the ancient world and in medieval times that had a more or less non-stop tradition of studying ancient texts, um, and which didn't get sacked until 1204. Uh, and when it was sacked, it was sacked by us good Western Western Latin Christians. Um, and uh, the tradition of Archimedes, uh, his manuscript tradition, is based on three codices. Uh, Codex A, uh, which was last heard of in the possession of Nicola Goldie in 1556. Um, Codex B, which was lost by the Pope in the Terre in 1311. And Codex C, which is now the Lord of the Army in Now, Codex, Codices A and B did their work as manuscripts in terms of conveying meaning. Uh, they were copied plenty of times. Well, Codex A plenty of times. Codex A was a famous manuscript in the Renaissance. Um, and, um, and, uh, but Codex C, unlike Codexes, Codexes A and B, had um, three treaties that weren't in those two books. The method, the method of mechanical theorems, uh, the stomachian, which means bellyache, and we, don't, we didn't know quite what it means, we have a better idea now, and on floating bodies um, in the original Greek. They were only in, um, in Codex C, and they were only discovered as being in Codex C in 1908, which I'll come to soon. 
Um, it was made in Constantinople in the 10th century, as many of you know. This was, this was the time to study Archimedes. This was the time, a great cultural flowering uh, in Byzantium. Um, after 1204, the situation is very different. Um, and uh, after the Fourth Crusade at Constantinople, was not the time to be reading uh, very, very high-end mathematics that you couldn't understand. Uh, it was the time to be saving your soul. Um, and new parchment being, being requiring a, uh, a, a serious infrastructure and maybe costing something, um, it was easier to reuse old parchment. Um, so the book was hand-tested. It was taken apart. The Archimedes text was scraped off. The bifolios were split down the middle. They stacked into a corner, shuffled up. And it wasn't just the Archimedes manuscript, there were several other manuscripts involved as well. We have 60 pages of other texts that um, haven't been identified until recently. Um, and some of them still haven't. Uh, and then, then they were overwritten by a prayer book, um, refolded and sat together. So you've now got a prayer book that's, that's, that's half the size, and sort of twice as thick, a bit more than twice as thick. Um, it spent at least from the 16th century until the early 19th century in the monastery of St. Sarbos, which is about eight miles um, east of Bethlehem, which then has actually not far from Rome, and it's a spectacularly beautiful place. Um, it was probably kept in the library, which is actually um, but it was discovered in 1906 by Johann Ludwig Heiber. It was discovered in the Metropion of the Holy Sepulchre uh, in Constantinople, uh, a rather small uh, Greek monastery in, in, in Constantinople. And it was discovered because, because the, the manuscripts there were catalogued by somebody called Papadopoulos Karamanis. Um, and he was, he was paid by the page and he didn't have tenure. So, as well as, as well as telling you what was on the upper text, he also transcribed a little page, a little bit of the, of the, of the upper text. And this came to the attention of Dr. Sherman, who knew that his friend Heiberg in Denmark uh, was interested in art and release, because he was already published by Fisher And Heiberg read it and said, uh, Is anyone person who would have that? And that's me, because I don't know what it is. So, he went to the Topion in 1906 and did his best to transcribe the manuscript. Um, and one of the problems that I have as director of this project is, to, is, to, is, to, is on the one hand, say how clever Heiberg was and what a fantastic scholar he was, and on the other hand, to maintain uh, that what we're doing is discovering an awful lot of new stuff. It's a very difficult balance to maintain. Uh, but one of the things is that Heiberg actually didn't spend much time in Constantinople. He worked in photographs, which were lost, and we, we, we discovered things that and he didn't photograph the entire manuscript. He only photographed about 60 pages because he was only interested in the method in the Sumatian and in um, on floating models. And he got his photograph all of them. And when he didn't have good photographs, we don't have good transcriptions. Um, and this is one of his photographs. And actually, he tried to transcribe the manuscript. And you can just about make out the Archimedes text running along the line. It disappeared from the Metopion. I'm not going to go into how in this lecture because I have a long way to go through. Uh, we simply don't know how. Um, but it reappeared um, at auction in 1998 um, at Christie's in New York on the 28th of October. And um, it was sold to someone, not Bill Gates, for two million. And as Gary told the story, he told me to go and 
actually bought it. And uh, before I did actually, uh, Gary was kind to me. I wrote back to him and I said, we're an art museum. And, uh, and I can't, you, it's a very, very ugly book and you can't even see Archimedes. And this is, you know, probably not a good idea. And he, he wrote, he, he, uh, he, uh, he, told, he told me not much work in directorial scrawl on this memo. Um, uh, but he didn't say no work, so I drafted an email to, uh, like everybody else, Simon Finch. And I didn't know Simon Finch, because Simon Finch is a printed book dealer, not a manuscript dealer. And I, sent, I found his email address on the web, simonfinch at rarebooks.com, and I wrote, Dear Mr. Finch, I'm the manuscripts curator at the Walters Art Gallery, Baltimore. The Walters has 850 medieval manuscripts, 1,300 incunables, and another 1,500 books printed after 1,500. Most of these books are illustrated, and most of them were collected by Henry Walters between about 1895 and 1928. We normally have a regular display of manuscript material. Our biggest show in recent years has been Time Sanctified, the Book of Hours in Medieval Life and Thought, with the catalogue by Roger Wick. More such shows are forthcoming following an extensive renovation that will be completed in 2001. We have an active acquisitions program, although our funding is limited. We have, for example, recently purchased a, late, a deluxe 16th century Ethiopian manuscript from Sam Fogg. In general terms, therefore, I would be most interested in receiving your catalogues and would be grateful if you would add me to your mailing list. However, I do have a more specific reason for writing. The director of the Walters, Dr. Gary Vican, is a specialist in Greek material and was fascinated, as am I, by the Archimedes Palimpsest. Dr. Vican wondered if there was any possibility of displaying the manuscript of the Walters for a short period of time. I do not know whether the purchaser of the volume would be at all interested in this idea, but if you think he might be, I would be most grateful to you if you could pass on the suggestion. The Walters does have an active ex exhibition program. We are currently putting on a show of works from the Vatican. Monet came earlier in the year, and the arts of Georgia are coming in 1999. If the owner of the palimpsest were interested in putting the manuscript on view, he might consider the Walters would be an appropriate place. Please excuse this cold call. It is just a thought, but from our point of view, an exciting one, given the extraordinary cultural importance of the Codex. Whatever you think of this, I would, as I say, look forward to hearing from you and to receiving your catalogues. <laughs> um, with many thanks for your time, William Knoll, Assistant Curator of Manuscripts at the Walters Art Museum. And I pressed the send button, I thought, sod it, that's, that's just it. You know, I've done my job. And three days later, I walked in, and as things happen these days, it happens on email, and Finch knew Fogg very well. Sam Fogg, who's a well-known manuscript dealer in London, and, 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 uh, and well-known to me and to the Walters, and he wrote, Dear Will, I'm writing with reference to your letter to Simon Finch, Finch on the subject of the palimpsest. I think the buyer of the palimpsest is very sympathetic to the idea of sending the Archimedes to the Walters. I have already suggested to him that we visit the museum in January. Perhaps we could discuss this in the Archimedes on the telephone soon. Best wishes, Sam. And to cut a long story short, the Archimedes palimpsest arrived here in January 1999. Fantastic! <laughs> Thanks, Gary, because... I am an expert in beautiful books, not ugly ones, Latin ones, not, I mean, Latin ones, not Greek ones, and religious ones, not mathematical ones. Um, but we did manage to put on an exhibition, and this is what it looked like. Um, the Archimedes section is still, is still here. The exhibition, by the way, I was wondering what to do, and then I thought, and then I thought about Christian liturgy. At the end of the day, you don't see the body of love in a way uh, but as long as you have a nice church service and music, something can go on. So I put this in a nice bit of water and then had a video with lots of music and things in the background. And it sort of worked. Um, and uh, 
But it was clear that the manuscript needed work, and it was clear also that the owner expected me to find the people to do this. Um, and uh, it's in appalling condition, and most of this has happened since 1908, when it was in the collection of the French family. Uh, specifically, they lived on the banks of the River Seine, which occasionally flood. As you know, parchment's quite tough, but it won't, won't do water terribly well, so we've got a serious mold problem. And uh, we won't recover that bit of Archimedes. Um, more dramatically still, sometime after 1929, forgeries were put on top of four of the gold round forgeries. Uh, so on this stage, we had to finish three gold round forgeries, finish three of the prayer books, and then get to Archimedes. It's a four of them. Uh, we know that they were done after 1929, which is why we read, because they're probably scale to scale this idea. From the reduced photographs in Oriental's Mansion, Gretler, who is a national A lot of my talk is, is always about other people because, because a lot of people volunteer their time in Archimedes. And, and uh, one of the uh, things that happened after it arrived was that um, we, had a, we had an article in the Washington Post. And we got a lot of people saying, I can, I can save Archimedes, and you just listen to me. And we got one that said, uh, Dear Doctors Noel and Quant, I read with interest the article in the Washington Post. Congratulations, it certainly puts our work into perspective. We in the intelligence community have, a, have equipment that may be able to help. We also have a wide range of contacts in the imaging community that could prove useful to you. If you would like to discuss this further, please do not hesitate to get in touch. Whatever the case, it sounds like a fascinating project. Good luck in your endeavours. Yours sincerely, Michael B. Toth, National Policy Director, the National Reconnaissance Office. Dear Dr. Toth, I think I'll just take the manuscript up onto the roof and perhaps you can arrange it that <laughs> lunch. We'll be done in five minutes. Um, it actually, it's actually the case that, um, that, uh, that uh, because it's a private book, we can't spend your tax dollars money on it. So Mike can't work for us um, can't work for us officially. And I don't know much about what Mike does even now, but I do know that he's pressed the go button on this machine. And he has 25 years of running very sophisticated imaging projects, which aren't working in Bora Bora Mountains right now, but have worked for us. Um, and, um, and, he, and, and his cover is his father's company, RB Toast Associates. Uh, and so whenever there are uh, incidental details, any kind of cost that he incurs, it's all done through his father's company. So don't worry, we're not spending a single penny of your dollars. Um, and he is absolutely critical to this process, um, as I'll, I'll come back to later. But um, we have various problems, clearly. Uh, conservation, imaging, and scholarship. And I'm going to deal with conservation first. This is Abigail Quant. Um, She's the Senior Conservator of Manuscripts and Rare Books at the Walters Art Museum and a dear friend and colleague. Um, and we've been working on this together ever since. Here she is. Um, and uh, that's the book looking as grand as it can possibly look. I mean, I try hard, but really. Um, this is uh, how it arrived when we first take the cover off. This is a temporary binding put on by And so that was quite easy to, uh, to undo. 
Um, but then you have to sort of take it apart. So Abigail's taking it apart. We're not doing anything in terms of conservation uh, that isn't absolutely necessary before imaging. But because the Archimedes text runs through the spine of the book, we have to take it apart. Um, this is the photo of the fo folio of the same page. Um, and even if it looks in reasonable condition, the background is they're just wrecks. Um, really, they're incredibly badly. Incredibly, incredibly delicate shape. Um, not, not good. This is actually folio one. This is a page of on floating bottles of high value that didn't identify it. So it's seven days. Abigail documents everything. I'm not sure that you can see this, but she does have the YR charts. Um, and her documentation is um, absolutely astonishing. Um, this is a detail of the spine after she'd taken off the temporary binding. You can see basically that it's in two halves. Um, this is high glue, and apparently this is in two different tackles. This is on wood glue, probably going back 1969, which is harder than the parts on the support itself. Uh, so there are new steps to get on that, which is going to be tricky, um, but we've got take off the glue first. Uh, that's what happens with this glue when you try and take it off. It pulls away like that. You don't actually Here's an example of the glue. Here's our new set. You can see it coming down here. But there's none of these are new sets that we've got glue. We try and make bills a lot easier by getting as much of that glue as we possibly can. It was a, turned into a prayer book. Oh, sorry, before I get there. This is a typical situation. This is an Abigail, this is a snapshot of an Abigail conservation chart. Um, and you can see here that this is the identity. This is quiet, folios, text, the original conjoint, whether there's a high birth photograph, the data is found, the parchment condition, and special notes. And the, it goes on, those are the bits I want to show. One of the extraordinary things is that is this. Here you can see that the spiral lines and steel are still there, okay? And in general, it's good. But as soon as you get to something really important and unique, this steel is still there, but suddenly you get to metal, poor, metal, very poor, stomachian, very poor. Uh, it, it's been, fate has been incredibly unkind. <laughs> um, and very poor is absolutely bloody appalling. I mean, really, you know, um, awful. Um, the Archimedes text is essentially only a stain. There's nothing about the part in there. It's um, and it's very, very faint. Um, because the manuscript was used in a liturgical performance so often, um, it's got lots of wax on it, very dirty wax, so you get rid of the wax mechanically. Um, and there are lots of bits of detritus in the gutter, all of which we document. So, binding uh, fragments, raised fire, all It's a meticulous, a meticulous operation. And the manuscript was finally completely disbanded uh, on, on November uh, the 14th of last year.
Um, this is a typical Abigail problem. Um, Um, here is Abigail mending it. Here is before, after, and the UV data that we sent to a scholar in Stanford who circled this and said it's a similar circle to the other thing you can do. Then he sent it to the owner, he says, here's $10,000 for the game. That's on a good day. Uh, not all the days are good, but. Um, Abigail really does do the minimal possible before, before we image. Um, and it's a tremendously labor-intensive uh, operation, which is now largely complete. Um, the imaging. We've been working with these guys um, since, 1990, since 1999. Uh, Professor of Imaging Science at the Chester Carlson Center of Imaging Science. And uh, we started off using a technique called multispectral imaging. And this is where I get self-conscious because I've got Bill in the audience. But one of the, one of the things to say is that it was always going to be a hard task because the spectral ranges of the Archimedes in the Cradle and the Archimedes And multispectral imaging is used for remote sensing techniques in space engineering. So you take different wavelengths of light, put them into a computer so they're all multispectral, and then you write algorithms or recipes through them to bring out precisely the components that you want to show. So here's a page where you, a deep, uh, and this is, the, this is a camera that we used um, with a liquid crystal tunable filter. And you start out with a page like that. Um, he didn't get a an award for that picture because, of course, we don't want the prayer book text, but we can bring out the prayer book text. He can also bring out the Archimedes text. Um, and you can do seemingly wonderful things. Uh, that's a picture of the same page in detail. Uh, this diagram, and this manuscript is uniquely important to the diagram because otherwise the diagram is So we thought we'd show them to our scholars, and uh, they hated them. <laughs> uh, they absolutely hated them. They hated them. They hated them for three reasons. Um, first of all, when you take images of different wavelengths of light, when you use the filter, the resulting image is slightly different. So you have a registration problem. So they come out slightly faster. Now this doesn't matter if you're trying to find a cannabis field in, in an animal's rainforest, but it does if you're imaging green cells. Another problem was that we were only using 300 dpi, uh, and um, the, another problem is that this image is a very, very processed image. I can't go into the details of it because I simply am not qualified to. But it was—it's the result of a labor-intensive algorithm, and every time you process an image, you necessarily introduce artifacts, which again don't matter with the cannabis field, but do matter with us. But the whole—the basic problem—that I hold myself a little bit. For not too much, is that the whole procedure was fundamentally misconceived. 
And it was fundamentally misconceived because we were working on the assumption that we had to get rid of the prayer book text on the top. Now, of course, if you're a decent palimpsest reader, you don't have to get rid of the prayer book text on the top. You can read through it perfectly easily. What you've got to do is to just bring out the underneath text. There's no point in getting rid of the prayer book text on the top unless you can literally read underneath the individual black letters. Is that what you're So, so we spend all the time trying to separate the uh, prayer book from the art media and um, and to get rid of it, and that was just just not a sensible way to proceed. So. Um, we had to rethink, and um, what we needed was more thinking, of, more thinking of higher resolution and less process. Now, if you look, this is a this is an image of a rather easy to read bit of Archimedes in, in normal life, regular human life. If you look at it in just a red tag of um, a red green blue light, the Archimedes text more or less is this. That is to say. Uh, it reflects in the red channel. If you look at it in the same thing in ultraviolet light, now, I should try and explain what ultraviolet light does. You can't see ultraviolet light, but ultraviolet, and what you're seeing is not ultraviolet light. But you shine shine ultraviolet on here, and what it does is it energizes the parchment, and the parchment will reflect back in visible light. But the parchment will reflect back So you've got to, you, you, if you combine, although you think that this is bad because you can't see any Archimedes, if you combine the two, if you in, combine the um, visible red channel with the blue and the green channel in UV, what you find is um, that the prayer book will come out black. like that. So you go from something like that to something like that. And you go from something like that, oh no, sorry, yeah. So this is what you end up with. Now, of course, if you're the director of the Archimedes Panthers project trying to make a hit in a press, you're not pleased because it looks like you. Um, but they are very, very legible pictures. And they're not read like this. They're not even red like that, they're not red like that, they're not red like that, they're red like that. And um, another thing that's very important is that this is done at about 600 dpi. We can get higher, you can always get higher. And if we were to be doing a taxing and reproduction, we'd get higher. But we don't want to do that, we just want to read Archimedes text. And when we've done that, we're happy. And on difficult pages, different, really difficult parts, we will go higher. For our standard production technique, uh, this is what we do. Um, and so you can see here that this is a red blue image. This is our failure. And now everything you can 
see why our success is a better image than our, than our And that's what we call push button processing. It's clever, it works, uh, and it works on a large scale. And one of the things I want to talk about is the is the collection of the data and the size of the scale of the operation on a large scale. Here we are, Abigail is the only person who has an annual manuscript, she's putting it onto a, an XY table. This is UV, this is Tungsten, uh, and this is Stroke, or Phil, is that right? Yeah. And, um, and uh, each leaf. And that's the, that's the setup, that's what it looks like. It's, not, it's very boring watching them do this, by the way. And each leaf is shot in 10 different segments that are then stitched together. Uh, 10 different segments of a bifolio. Now, one of the things about books is that uh, when you take them apart, they suddenly become very, very big. Uh, this is a six-foot guy, Roger Easton, the head of the Indian team. And that's the, amount, that's the amount of, roughly the amount of area of the Archimedes Palisades that we're having with. There's an, awful, there's an awful lot of photography to do. Uh, there's even more data to handle because we're imaging it in, in, in RGB light, UV light, and pseudo-color light. And, the, um, and uh, actually, we, we take it in tungsten because, because the pseudo-color works best with tungsten. So there's actually another one of theirs, but Roger would completely disappear, which wouldn't be fair. Uh, so we have a data problem. Um, and also an accessing problem. Um, when we started out, we started out with CDs, and luckily technology has grown with us, so we can now just about pack all our data, and we've now imaged the entire manuscript using pseudo-color, into a 300 gigabyte external hard drive. Um, of course you've got to access that information because it's not in a bound book anymore so you use it using a very simple super navigator let's say you want to look at equilibrium of planes you want to look at 27B22R you click on it, you get that you can then look at it in individuals or, or stitched images stroke ultraviolet or pseudo-covering let's go ultraviolet with an individual so I can click on the middle left thing and do that uh, and then I go straight into Adobe Photoshop and I can get to exactly the place I want uh, that's the theory and that works well with some of our scholars um, we also print out hard copy because one of our scholars is Nigel Wilson who doesn't know how to use a computer um, his wife has now learned how to do JPEG attachments which is truly helpful um, but, but nonetheless, we're dealing with printouts. And, um, and that's a bit of an insult to the images, actually, because, of course, we're giving them mega-gigabyte files, and, and there's only so much, with millions of colors, and there's only so much you can do with a, with a printer. Nigel worked with a magnifying glass, and mainly in the summer months, we're hopeful for progress. Um, one of the things that I necessarily do in a talk like this is you have to structure it somehow, but one of the ways that one of the things that we found absolutely critical is keep that hallway between the scholars and the images and the conservatives. Uh, this is an early photograph of a very famous photo for us, 25110, um, which has Archimedes Metropolitan 14 on it. Uh, it's UV, red 
Um, now, trying to store all this data and document it is, of course, an ongoing issue that I'm not going to go into. Here's me vainly trying to teach Nigel Wilson how to use a computer. <laughs> um, I'm giving this talk with Nigel at the courthold in a couple of weeks, and, I've, and, and, and there is no more man more delightful, actually, and I do have to think of different lines. Um, but this is Natalie Chernetska, who's at Trinity College, Cambridge, and she's an expert on Byzantine palimpsest practices. There are many scholars at work on the palimpsest, but this is Reviel Metz, who's just produced Latin based on the palimpsest, the, the CDP, the first proper translation of Archimedes, using Archimedes Greek into English for the first time in CDP. Um, and here he is, and I'm trying to understand what he's saying. Um, um, but we have had some interesting results. Um, this is folio one of the panning sets, and this is a process in which to reveal the column. It's not a passing on three years to find out something that came from the dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the manuscript was panning tested on 30 pages of the polysatinate, which was Easter Saturday. We haven't quite worked out where it is. It's following here. Um, and uh, so there's a word John Loudon found that. Uh, on the same day in 2001, April the 13th. Um, I was talking about the fact that we're having to say that Heiberg was a great scholar and trying to balance this out with whether, this is, whether there was any point in looking at the book anymore. When we found Heiberg's photographs, this is Folio 82, it's floating bodies. There's a cross here, not even to do this, the photograph just stops there. But when we first found these photographs, so there are some, uh, you know, several pages like that in the book. Um, I'm just going to read some of the some of the uh, results that we've that we've um, that we've uh, come across. This is at uh, 105.110 and Reviel Net. In a couple of months, the first intellectual fruits of our labor will be published together with a complete transcription of one crucial side of one page, most of which is unknown to modern science. I send you the final lines of the article as it stands in draft form. It is understated. It reads as follows. To sum up, then, the new reading of Archimedes' Indivisibles proof should call for some reconsideration of the position of Archimedes in some key areas of the history of mathematics, especially the two related fields, conceptual fields of the calculus and of infinity. Uh, what, um, uh, what we discovered is that Archimedes really understands the concept of numbers that are equal, that are, that are, that are equal in multitude but in different ways. So he really sort of understands concrete, a concrete sense of, of, of infinity and different types of infinity. Um, we uh, produce it and we publish these things in rock-hard learned journals and uh, then we get a pretty image, we make it prettier, then we make it ugly, and then we get on the front page of the Sunday Times magazine, which is, which is an integral part of what we do. One of, the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things is dealing with the press, because on the one hand, it's through the press that we get the recognition that people working on this project deserve, because they don't get much money. Uh, and on the other hand, it's through the press that as well as the nutcases, we get people who genuinely phone up and say, yes, I can help. Um, 
This is Natalie Chernetska. Dear Will, in the course of further explanation of the exploration of the non-Archimedes folios, I recently deciphered the text of a Greek or orator otherwise unknown. I could identify parts of lost speeches by Hyperides. Folios 135 to 138 contain a fragment of his law speech against Hamandra. Folios 136 to 137, a fragment of a political speech, possibly against Diondas. Uh, and folios 174 to 175, possibly a fragment of the same political speech. There actually now we know there are five, five bifolia of Hyperides in the Archimedes palimpsest, which sounds a little obscure, except that, Hyper, uh, that Hyperides is otherwise known in the, in, the, in the Codex tradition, otherwise he only survives in papyri. He was never thought to make it into the world of parchment and manuscript. So that's exciting. Uh, Another one from Nets. Um, Will pasted in is my Princeton abstract towards a reconstruction of Archimedes' Stomachian. Since the discovery of the palimpsest and the publication of the Stomachian fragment in 1915, judgments on its mathematical contents were dismissive. It was considered to be a disparate collection of trivial geometrical observations on a game, at best an example of Archimedes' playful mind. Two recent developments force a re-evaluation. Fabio Acerbi has shown that Hipparchus in the 2nd century BC had produced a sophisticated work in combinatorics. In the same year, the palimpsest page of the Stomachian has been imaged, allowing me to make further readings going beyond the 1915 publication. I argue that the Stomachian was a combinatoric study and that Hipparchus' work was written in reaction to it. The Stomachian was not a plaything then, but a major new avenue opened up by Archimedes to Greek mathematics. Rockard Journal, New York Times. Um, this is the most recent one from Nigel. Dear Will, excellent news. The hard drive and photos came safely this week. At first glance, suggests there's no more Hyperides, but several leaves of the philosophical text on which I read the name of Aristotle clearly enough. And this text really is another text in the manuscript that we've yet to identify. Um, so we, this, this was basically all done with our pseudo-color push-button processing, as we call it. Um, but again, this is an iterative process, and we now have 80% of the text. Um, but this is a typical example where we haven't got something, and Nets has circled this. Um, this example is from the method, middle of 158V, column 1. Here Archimedes draws some lines to do something, but I'm not sure which something it is. I have a guess, but it's just a guess. If I get the letters referring to the diagram describing where the line goes through, and get a couple of words before that... I think I'll be able to settle with great certainty the mathematical action of this proposition. Now, it's not for me to determine, you know, when we stop looking. It's for the scholars to make their best case. To me, I present it to the owner, and if the owner is willing to pay, uh, then, then we do. Uh, and we had a conference uh, starting on April Fool's Day, 2004, um, to try and get the remaining uh, 20%. And, uh, and from now on, I'm going to talk about the ways in which we've been trying to get the um, remaining, remaining 20%. Uh, this is a guy called Derek Valvord. He's a, a graduate student in, uh, at the Rochester Institute of Technology. And he's pretty clever with computers. Um, the principle behind this, and I don't understand the math, is that the FBI is very, very good at taking a photo and matching it to millions of other photos just seven measurements in 
get 99% of the time you can get the right face. If you can do this with you know, an ever-growing number of terrorists, you should be able to do it with a limited number of Greek characters. So we had a competition, we devised a competition, we said anyone, any, the person who gets the best tool for helping a scholar to read a, um, a Greek text uh, gets 10,000 bucks. And of course the grad student develops the tool. <laughs> um, and uh, this is the tool. So you browse, you find a, you um, pull it up, you find a character, try that character, you set, select a region of interest, you confirm your region of interest, and you run the system. This is always scary. I should figure it out so that I choose a letter that I know works. I haven't done that yet, but um, we'll see how he does. And then you, and then it gives you what it thinks it's, the letter is in sort of decreasing order of in, in decreasing order of in increasing order of decreasing order of likelihood. So it got it, and that looks kind of cool. Until of course you realise that you can read that letter anyway. And that's not what you want to do. <laughs> and then you know, the FBI really don't do terribly well. The photographs are torn across the middle, <coughs> which is exactly our problem. So um, right now we're, we're developing we're developing ways of looking into this, and um, and we're pretty pleased with our first results. We're getting the neural network together, training to recognise characters, to recognise the client. And of course, we're doing this just visually at the moment. But once you start building uh, contextual lesson combinations, then, you know, whether this will ever get as good as Next Wilson and Chernetska, then they can take that, but Next Wilson and Chernetska are interesting. Um, so that's one way in which we're proceeding. Uh, in comparison with the rest of the imaging of the Archimedes Pan set, there's great, two great things about this. One is relatively cheap, and the other is it doesn't impact on the manuscript at all because it's just doing the photograph, so it's a sort of a separate thing. Uh, I don't have to get the book this found. It can all happen off-site. Um, another thing that we did, which we talked about multispectral imaging before, there's another thing you can do, which is hyperspectral imaging. It's just more wavelengths now. A few years ago, this was very, very expensive. But Bill and the tonight came up with the idea of using LEDs. Like any diamonds, you know, they throw away pipes and you can stick in the thing and you can check that they come out of very specific way and you can just check them. So you can, you can actually do this remarkably cheaply now if you're prepared to um, set up the system yourself. So we went back to hyperspectral imaging and remember what happened earlier, one of the problems was the registration between the different levels, that was because of the filter. But now, with this lumen, so we don't have any registration problems anymore when we're lying on our daylight and we're going to say something with the eye. And uh, that's what it looks like when they're all on. 
and these are the various different curves that they make, and you can choose which combination you want to use and get a number of different wavelengths of light. Um, there's just one. Did it work? Well, uh, here you get the Archimedes test very well. Here you don't get this tool. So what Bill did was put it through our standard push-button processing and see if he got a better result, and he did. This is a, um, a better result than this. Uh, we're not going to go back and reuse the entire manuscript, uh, but in the light of what I'm going to show you in a minute, uh, this might yet be a very crucial way of proceeding. Um, so when we had this conference, we were looking to improve our own techniques that we already knew, and we already knew we were pretty good at the frankly. Um, and we were looking for two different things. There was the computer thing, and then there was something totally, totally different, and um, that was uh, X-rays. And so I'm going to introduce you to three uh, new guys now. This is Paul Morton, who's the principal research scientist at Concord Dirt. This is Dean Hall, who is the uh, professor of chemistry at Rutgers University. And this is Uwe Byrne, who is um, research scientist at the Sanford Accelerator Center. Um, most of uh, okay. the electromagnetic spectrum. What you need to understand is the visible light is like radio waves and it's like gamma waves. It's photons. It's just the three natural selection you register them through your eyes. You actually register infrared and heat through your skin, and ultraviolet will give you sunlight. And it does this through different wavelengths, and different wavelengths respond to things in different ways, which is why on a cloudy day, you might not feel hot because the infrared rays won't get through, but you still get sunburn because the ultraviolet light will get through. And we're playing around right here. Um, but as you get, as wavelengths get shorter and the, and the energy and the photons get much more energetic, you get a hard X rays again. And we're now completely different part of the spectrum. And the hard X rays work on the level of individual. Uh, and, and so you're no longer dealing with when photons hit things they, they hit the uh, in natural light and visible light they hit the outer electrons and they hit the photons back but with hard x-rays uh, you'll hit the uh, you'll hit the inner the inner and, uh, and that will send you a photon back of a very specific wavelength um, Here's a photon coming in, an X-ray photon. It will knock out the inner electron on the K. These rings are called KLMN because when Mills Bohr found this model for the atom, he didn't know how many rings there were, so he started in the middle of the alphabet. So it knocks out a K electron. Uh, the L electron will slip into the K electron, and as it does so, it will emit an X-ray, but precisely the energy. Then an outer electron moving into this one, this is called the KP. Now, these things, because each, each element by definition is made up of this different atomic constituency, are, um, 
are elemental specific. If you can catch these bounce back x-rays, they will tell you exactly what element it is that you're looking at. And uh, this is what you have here. Uh, the uh, x-ray tube is here, the detector is here, and it will pick up the different signals at different, at different, for different elements. And this is just a quick scan of something on the Archimedes page asking what elements are there. So we have uh, a little bit of potassium, a little bit of manganese, a little bit of copper, a little bit of zinc, a huge amount of calcium. Those of you who remember how parchment was made, might be surprised at that. And after a why? Possibly iron is red. What you want to do is you just concentrate on the iron, and then you get an iron back to your page. That's the plan. Um, so here we are at work. Uh, we were actually at an industrial park in New Jersey, Marwan, New Jersey. Um, but you put, you put the Archimedes leaf in. It's sort of in there now. And it comes up on the screen here. And as it's scanning, it comes out with different, without with different elements to show on the screen. And this is an early experiment where we're taking this bit here. That's what it looks like on the regular light. That's UV, that's CO card, and here is and here is X-ray. And it's not looking very promising, but actually to me it's just sort of promising enough to continue with it. And uh, here is a gold ground miniature. This is a gold ground miniature, and this is what it looks like. And this is our new and this is enough for medicine also just, just to read it. Um, but this is half a line. And this scan took 10 hours. Uh, it was a deal. Um, if you image a an easier page to image, you know, the one that we can read anyway, uh, this is not an easy page. This is a pseudo-file. This is an iron map, and this is just a grayscale iron map, which will allow you to see different gradients more easily. Um, now, what you're seeing in this image is a surface picture, right? But what you're seeing in this image is an iron map, and you can see Archimedes heads on the other side of the page here. This is on this side, and that's on the other side of the page. So you're not seeing the surface at all, you're seeing the sum total. So you're seeing the sum total of iron in any, any, any place at any one time. So while you can't see the Archimedes ink underneath the Eucolodion ink, if you're looking at an iron map, you can see greater intensity where Archimedes overlaps with Eucolodion. And you can actually make out the shape of that theta through underneath the Eucolodion Uh, and this is sort of where we are now. This is a potassium map. And there's lots of potassium in the prayer book, and very, very little in the Archimedes. So I'm going to get Bill, uh, I hope, to write me an algorithm that takes the ratio of potassium to iron, and where it's lower than a certain number, he can just get rid of it, and the iron is left with Archimedes. That's the plan. But this is only done back a month ago. Um, 
Still, it takes a long time. What you need is a big gun, specifically the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. This is the, this is, we weren't actually at the linear one. We were at the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the synchrotron radiation laboratory, which is the round one. And, uh, which was built later than that, than, than, than the straight one. And you charge up electrons and particles to as to near as that the speed of light. And you send them around and around and around. But we're not interested in the fact that they crash. The high-end high part of the physicists are interested in the fact that they crash. What, what we're interested in is the fact that as they go round, 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 round in circles, they go round, they give off photons, which the high-end part of the physicists aren't interested in because to them it's just noise, but which is potentially extremely useful. If you can capture this, these photons here, which are immensely powerful and use them and focus them onto something you want to get even with a short content. Um, and that's what we hope to do. And when I say powerful, uh, this is the sun, and this is the power of synchrotron radiation, and this is geometric. So a very, very powerful machine. Um, This is the setup. The beam comes through here, it goes into this lead box here, and this is inside the lead box here, and this is the tube coming in, and it's going to arch here out there. Uh, this is a diagram setup. This is the lead here with the tube filters, and this to attenuate the beam, it's far too powerful. Put on really fast, so you, so you put in essentially a foil, but you know exactly how much into the beam, and you put it on there and then bounce it back there. Uh, look at this because the beam is going straight on to Archie, and the detector is at an angle. Okay. Um, this is slightly different to the setup we eventually used, um, which I'll come back to. Uh, it was a very funny place to work at. Really exciting. But the thing is that you've got, you know, one of, one of the six most advanced light sources on Earth. And, and then you've got, but it's like, it's like an experiment on that. And then you have to build your experiment. So you get funny things whereby we couldn't use the commands on this computer because this computer was 20 years old. And every time we used a command, you knocked up our raster. So they had to have hands off it. And then you had, this is for me at 3 o'clock in the morning. So this is my instructions to move the beam. You know, it was really cool. Exit plotter, exit raster, you know, edit region, and stuff. Yeah. Um, and yet, you were looking at things where it says current position 39.998651. And this is in millimeters. Uh, it was really an extraordinary combination of incredibly sophisticated and, and literally um, the beam comes out here. This is Archie. He's only put down there. And Archie moves. The beam stays the same, but Archie moves on the XY stage. And this is the detector here. Um, Archie is now at an angle to the beam, and the detector is precisely 90 degrees to the beam because the beam gives out uh, polarized pulses of light. And if you have the detector at 
So you can do a whole page, or at least that's half a page, and you can do um, to the same resolution effectively as you've got at the, on, on an EDAX machine. Um, so then you get into press and all sorts of things. Oh, I've gone over the press too much. I'm going to get rid of this slide next time. Um, and the press. Which this came out about three weeks ago. The press, the press, uh, got sensational. And actually, I do think that the images of the forgeries are pretty good. Well, they're pretty good. They're legible. Just a point. Um, this is this is a much more typical picture where you've got a problem because you're seeing both sides of the uh, of the page. The Rebel Net says it will. One power says it's all right, but four different texts, not so good. And, um, and the real tragedy is that we were pretty sure that we've got every single bit of iron that you can see. Yeah. And the mold has just eaten away our meetings to an extent that I'm not sure we're going to recover him. I mean, our meetings did die by the sword in the third century BC. He was eaten by mold in the 21st. That's the moral of But the um, one of the images noted that if you look closely, there's a sort of a three-dimensional quality to this. Um, and Bob Morton, who's one of our one of our images, has done a lot of work on fossils. Okay, glasses time. Stick on the glasses. Um, this is Bob's done a lot of work on the Burgess Shale fossils. This is a RGB-like Burgess shale fossil, and this is a stereo image of what he calls a sexy, that is to say, a stereo um, X-ray image. Uh, and I hope you're seeing a three-dimensional fossil. And what's more, you're seeing its chemical content. And you can tell that this is soft tissue, that the animal got killed by going this way. So the matrix in which fossils are kept can tell you important uh, information about the soft tissue of dinosaurs. So if you're analyzing pseudo-dinosaur these days, you don't throw away the mud that's in the eye socket because that can tell you something about the, uh, about the chemical makeup of the eye. So paleontologists are really uh, thinking in different ways now about when they start to study skeletons. But anyway, we thought we'd apply this to the Archimedes palimpsest and see if by making stereo we, we could help people read it better. And so what you do is you take uh, uh, two different images of the same area uh, and you take them at an angle of seven and a half degrees because that's the angle between your eyes and your eyes is four foot away from the paper surface. And then you stick them together for white to your blue with glass and white to your red glass. And then you end up with something 
So, oh, no, you don't. You don't. You end up with something like um, like that, and it'll take some time. And if anyone's going ahead, send your glasses on, because I'm not sure how I'm not sure how helpful this is really. Uh, Reviel next thought that it was fantastic, but he is not um, it should give you some sense of backwards and forwardsness, and you can probably actually see around here a sort of fold in the parchment. It takes some time to see. Um, but I think ultimately, when we're trying to decipher between all this information, probably the different, the different um, elements as we saw them on the EDATA sheet, which we could do, in theory do at Stanford, will be more effective than trying to read the Archimedes text. Um, but that's where we are right now. We're having, um, when we're looking into our future work on, on X-ray fluorescence, but you can bet your bottom dollar that when the leaves are in good enough shape, we will be taking them to Stanford and doing more, and doing more X-ray uh, fluorescence. Um, so, um, so uh, luckily, uh, the own center value is the world center value from Paul. It's just to get an Archimedes text while managing manuscript form, uh, which is what we try and do. Um, I, of course, uh, am an expert, so I'm an expert in anything in illuminated Anglo-Saxon sources from about 1030 from just south of Canterbury in September. Uh, and, and I have learned a great deal about how to run a program. I learned, I learned how to run uh, maintain competition all the time. Um, keep momentum. So uh, have things run in parallel. Uh, always be aware of what your critical path is. Uh, ensure integration so it's always feedback loop. Uh, stick to your goals. I don't think this has ever become an abstract science experiment. All we want to do is get our community set down safely. Uh, stick to data standards uh, so that um, your data isn't just a total mess, and that's true whether you're imaging in extra RF or in pseudo card or whatever it is. You want to try and keep this data absolutely there and to record it. And sit for open source material, so, uh, so open source software, so that you are never beholden to uh, any, any sort of copyright or protection issues. That's what we've done. And, you know, uh, it is true, I think, now that multi-sector imaging is rocket science, but it's rocket science that you can just have. And RT 1.1 software, which is what we do with pseudo color, anyone can ask me for it, I can just give it to them. Um, and plan, and plan, and plan. We plan, and plan, and plan. Actually, Mike plans, and plans, and plans, and I just implement it. Um, and uh, so I normally don't look more than two weeks ahead, but with Archie, I know that we're going to finish imaging by July of 2007. Um, and I know that we're going to be finishing transcriptions by December of 2007. Uh, so that I can produce something, hopefully an exhibition by the end of 2008. Um, there are an awful lot of people who work on this, but not an awful lot, no, about the size of this room. And uh, most of them work on it for virtually no money for a lot of the subject. Most of them have full-time jobs, and they do it on the weekend just like me. Um, and however many of us work on it, uh, we always get more out because we're just dealing with the mind of a really, really great man. Thank you very much.